So Psalm 29, uh, just to revisit one statement in this psalm or one verse in this psalm, I would like to read um, where it says that we want to ascribe to the Lord glory due to his name. As verse 2 of Psalm 29. In this uh, psalm, the title that we're going to go with tonight is The Glorious Voice of the Lord. The Glorious Voice of the Lord. And one thing that's uh, a big question today, one thing that's a big uh, back and forth debate within the church is as we go about church, as we go about gathering for worship as the communion, as the body of believers, what ought to be the focus of church? What is the purpose of us gathering together as believers, as saints? There's some who would argue that the purpose of the church, the purpose of the gathering, is to be sensitive and welcoming to those who are unbelievers, not of the sheepfold, so that they can experience an intimacy or an opportunity to encounter God, and that by means of that service, they can encounter a relationship with God and grow in uh, holiness to become one of the faithful. There's another camp or another group that would argue that the purpose of the gathered body, the purpose of worship, is not for the outsiders of the church, but it is to worship and glorify God. And I would submit to you that there's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of pros and cons to each, but I think Psalm 29 comments very specifically on the purpose of gathering, the purpose of worship, is not to expand the kingdom, it is to magnify God. The purpose of worship is for the saints to gather together and to glorify and lift up the name of the Lord. So we want to not have seeker-sensitive worship. We want to have God-sensitive worship as we gather together. As you move through this psalm, uh, you can kind of see how this unfolds. You see that it starts in the throne room of heaven. It starts with the heavenly beings, with the angels glorifying and worshiping God in the first two verses. And then in verses 3 through 9, you see the movement of the storm as the glory of God hits earth and it causes destruction and chaos and his voice carries out through all the earth, breaking cedars and shaking mountains. And ultimately, you see that come to a resting place of peace and the path of destruction that has gone from heaven to earth and has ultimately resulted in the peaceful transition of the earth being able to glorify God just as heaven also glorifies God. So as we see this text, you're going to see the movement of the storm. But the first thing, the first two verses talk about, for those of you who take notes, is that we want to perceive his glory. Verses 1 and 2 talk about us perceiving, first and foremost, the glory of God. Verse 1 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. You see, first and foremost, the word here is ascribe. You see that three times in the first two verses. Ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. That means you want to give to the Lord things that are already his. Not that we can give anything in addition to the Lord, but it says we ascribe to the Lord, we give to the Lord glory and strength, and most specifically the glory and strength that are due to his name. We are to ascribe this to the Lord. We are to worship and praise the Lord for the glory and the strength of his name. The saints and the faithful, here it says that the heavenly beings, that's referring to the angels, this is what they are called to do. And David, as he writes this psalm, writes it 
And the first thing he does is not call on the people or on his own praise and worship, but he feels himself insufficient to glorify God. And so he calls upon the heavenly host who spend their whole lives glorifying God. And he calls on them to help him in his praise and his worship of the Lord. He says, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe glory and strength to God. You see, in Exodus 34, verse 7, we, t- we talk about who this Lord is. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And when God reveals himself to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a jealous God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His faithfulness goes to all generations. He reveals himself to Moses, and it is this God who we're talking about. We, we speak of this often, but here we see Lord, all caps, which means we're talking about the covenant name of Yahweh, the specific revealed name of the Lord. And you'll see this 18 times in this psalm. No other psalm repeats the name of the Lord this often. It says, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, worship the Lord, the voice of the Lord, over and over and over again to remind us who it is that we are worshiping. Who is this God that we worship? Ascribe and give praise to this God. It says that he has glory that is due to his name. That he has glory, not that we give him, not glory that we throw before him or add to him. He already has glory and all we can merely do is reflect that glory back to him, to give back the glory that he already has. We are called to worship the Lord and ultimately we're called to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Some translations might read that we are to worship the Lord in holy attire or holy clothing or holy garments. This is difficult for us because we are imperfect creatures, not clothed in holiness, not naturally covered in righteousness. And yet we are called to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So how then do we do this? Well, the church does this as Paul exhorts the church in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that holiness and our putting off of sin and clothing ourselves in Christ's righteousness, that is an act of worship. That is one of the ways in which we can approach the throne and begin to give God back his glory. That is one of the ways in which we can reflect and magnify the name of the Lord. We can worship God by putting off sin and putting on righteousness, by purging ourselves of iniquity and clothing ourselves in holiness. That means that the church has to put off all manner of gossip, slander, bitterness, resentment, envy, hate, lust, idolatry, pride. And you can think each and every one of you in your lives and the the things that most impact your ability to be clothed in righteousness, the things that most mar you, the things that most prevent your ability to worship God fully and perfectly in holiness. And it is not as though we will achieve in this lifetime perfect holiness or perfect worship of God, but yet we still strive to be like the heavenly beings and their ability to worship God in holiness. The Lord's prayer is that we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is already being done in heaven. And yet we long for that moment when we can worship God as they do in heaven. And we long for that moment. And so one of the ways in which we strive to make heaven come down to earth 
is to ourselves be clothed in holiness and to put off of our old sin and clothe ourselves in his righteousness. We don't put on our own clothes to get to holiness. We have to put on Jesus' clothes. We don't have any righteousness that is befitting of this kind of worship. And so the only people who can even begin to worship God in this kind of holiness are those who are blood-bought, atoned for, and their sins have been covered. This is one of the reasons why when we gather for worship, worship is for the saints to glorify God. Worship is not an opportunity for evangelism. Evangelism helps with worship. More people glorifying God certainly helps with worship. But the worship service is not so much about how many people we can get in a building, but it is more so how greatly we can magnify the name of the Lord. And one of the ways is by making sure that we as a church are purified and holy. And as Revelation says that the church has clothed herself and presented herself as a bride who is spotless and blameless, ready for the groom. And that is one thing we need to, as a church, long for, is to be clothed in that kind of holiness. So first, to worship God, we need to perceive his glory. And then secondly, in order to worship God, we need to hear his voice. We need to hear his voice. You're going to see this with me in verses 3 through 9 of this text. Listen to the repetition as we read this. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry, Glory. You hear the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. As the heavenly throne room comes down to earth, it is manifest here in a thunderstorm. Here, a storm that starts out over the waters and makes its way into landfall in the northern parts of the promised land, and that eventually comes to a hedge in the southern parts in the wilderness and finally resolves in a flood, as we'll see in verses 10 and 11. But here, the personification of this thunderstorm, this great natural movement of the earth, is that it is the voice of the Lord moving through and making landfall. The voice of the Lord comes down from heaven, and the voice of the Lord comes over the earth. And as this happens, as the voice of the Lord moves forth, we see that all things bow down, and obey the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, and the God of glory thunders. It says the Lord thunders over creation. And to get a picture of what that is like, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, and we'll be in verse 16 of that text. As the Lord makes fall on the earth and he manifests himself to his people, this is a time when the people have been led out of captivity and they are now standing and waiting for the manifest presence of God before them. And there's a mountain, Mount Sinai, that has been set aside. And they've been fasting and praying and waiting for the Lord to show up. And then in Exodus 19, verse 16, we get that moment. 
It says in verse 16, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Here we have an account of the Lord coming down to earth from heaven to earth and he speaks. And the recording here is that his voice was like a trumpet blast, like thunder, that causes the mountain to shake and the people to tremble, so much so that they won't even come close to the mountain because they are greatly afraid of what is to come. They fear the power of simply the voice of the Lord as it rumbles forth. And that is like what we see in this psalm, that the voice of the Lord thunders. The God of glory thunders. And the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The Lord is over many waters. And then in verse 4, we see that the voice of the Lord is powerful and that it is full of majesty. Here we begin to get a picture of a kind of apologetic argument about who this God is in relation to the Canaanite deities. You see, the Canaanites believed in a pantheon of gods, which means they believed in a God over the waters, a God of the storm, a God of the land, a God of the harvest, and a great many other gods. And over all of the Canaanite gods was this one chief god, or this one father god, who they called El. And here, using a kind of apologetic argument, the psalmist, David, makes an argument that this El God, this Father God, is over the waters, meaning he's over the God of the waters. He's more powerful than that God. They don't share power, but it is God and God alone. And the voice of the Lord thunders, and the God of thunders and storm and fertility was Baal, the God who they worshipped for their harvest and their seasons of plenty. And he makes the argument that the God of glory is the one who thunders, that El is the same one who thunders, who's over the waters. And that in this language, the argument is that there is no pantheon of gods, but there is but only one holy God. And there is not a great multitude of things to worship, but there is only one God worthy of worship. And it is his voice seen over the waters, and it is his voice felt through the thunders, and it is his voice that is powerful, and it is his voice that is majestic. That same majesty that we saw in verses 1 and 2 in the heavenly throne room is now attributed to the thunders as they're perceived making landfall. And in verse 5, we see what happens when the voice of the Lord encounters arguably the most powerful things that are on the promised land. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Now, these aren't thin pine trees or thin oak trees. The cedars of Lebanon were the trees that were used in the building of the temple. They were the finest, thickest, densest wood that was available for building. In fact, it is the very glory of Lebanon 
that is her cedars. Even to this day, the cedars of Lebanon are a commodity, a chief export, a sign of fertility and greatness and power because of how sturdy they are. They are like redwood trees in California. They have deep roots and wide, uh, wide uh, bases, and they are powerful. And here it says that the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. This is not a thin tree being snapped in half by a dainty wind. This is the most powerful tree imaginable being shattered in half by the voice of God. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon, and he makes Lebanon, which is a mountain region, to skip like a calf, meaning he causes the mountains to shake and dance and obey his voice. The mountain trembles as his voice makes landfall. And Sirion, which is another mountain range on the northern end, also skips like a young wild ox, meaning something that ought not to be skipping and dancing an ox is jumping around and obeying the voice of God. And then we see in verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. These flames of fire speak of lightning. So this is not only a storm of thunder, this is a storm of lightning. The voice of the Lord is the one that causes the flames of fire to flash forth. The voice of the Lord goes all the way south and makes landfall in the wilderness. And the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. So you have from east to west and north to south, the Lord shaking the entirety of the promised land. And the Israelites see this storm passing through and they acknowledge it only as God and God alone. And here we have almost a kind of picture being painted of what the voice of the Lord shakes. The voice of the Lord is over, as we've seen before, the waters. And the waters are symbolic of chaos. And the waters in this case are even symbolic of false gods, the pantheon of the Canaanites. And the voice of the Lord is over the chaos and the false gods. The voice of the Lord, as it moves into landfall, it shatters the hardest thing imaginable, the cedars of Lebanon. And the voice of the Lord lays bare the wilderness. And between these three things, we see who God is and where he is located. The voice of the Lord is more powerful than anything imaginable. The voice of the Lord can break the most fortified, hard place. And the voice of the Lord lays bare all things, including the wilderness. The voice of the Lord achieves its end. As Charles Spurgeon says, that when the Lord sends forth his word, it breaks hearts that are far harder than the cedars of Lebanon. As the voice of the Lord goes forth, the cedars of Lebanon are not a difficult thing for it to break because it can break the hardest of the human heart, the most rebellious, fortified, rooted-in place, the place that is most fortified in pride. The voice of the Lord sweeps through and shatters, breaking it in half. And praise God that he has done so for us. The voice of the Lord goes forth and it lays the wilderness bare. The most dry, barren, empty heart is laid bare before the Lord. As his voice goes forth, it does not return void, but it achieves its end. The voice of the Lord shakes loose the wilderness and begins to produce fruit in it. As the flames of fire flash forth from the very voice of God, we see that there are two possibilities in Scripture. One is that as the flames of fire go forth, it is a flame of destruction. 
You can read about this in Leviticus 10 or Numbers 16. As the fire goes forth from God and consumes the sin of the people. You can also see the holy flame of God going forth in Acts chapter 2. As the divided tongues of fire split over the apostles. And the holiness begins and the church is established and his Holy Spirit carries forth. So you have the flame of fire being both a symbol of good and of destruction. And both are possible. Both are caused by the flame of fire that comes from the very mouth of God. In Job 38, 35, God says it this way when he's challenging Job. He says, can you send forth lightning that they may go and say, here we are? God says that you should not mistake thunder and lightning and storms as anything random, Job. They are mine and mine alone to command. And matter of fact, as my voice calls to them, they come to me and say, here we are, send us wherever you may. And God personifies the lightning as being so obedient to his command that it cannot go or come or stay unless he deems it so. This speaks to the almighty sovereignty of God. His voice is the one that causes the flames of fire to flash forth. His voice is the one that shakes the wilderness. It lays the mountains bare. And it is the voice of God that reigns supreme over all things. Have you heard the voice of God? Have you heard it lay bare your wild, dead heart? Have you heard it snap the cedar and the hardness of your heart? Has it broken you? We read in the meditation today, John 10. And we talked about, at that moment, that it is the sheep that hear the voice of God. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And the thing that marks the sheep is that they know my voice. That is the thing that marks the faithful of God is that they know his voice. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells a parable to the disciples. And actually, there's a whole group of people there. And he speaks this parable, and then as soon as he's done, he turns, and he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples gather together, and they're trying to figure out what he's talking about. And they ask him, Lord, why do you say things in parables? We don't understand. And he says, they may indeed see, but not perceive, and they may indeed hear, but not understand that there is a difference between those who get the parable and those who don't. And the difference is marked by those who can see and really see, and those who can hear and really hear. And he says in John chapter 10, he says, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It says in Isaiah 45 verse 22, that the sheep who know the voice of the Lord, they ought to turn to God and be saved. And that this command goes out to all the ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is salvation in no other. There is no place which you can turn besides God. The same argument is made in Micah chapter 7, verse 7. It says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And then we see this expanded in the New Testament when Jesus says that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. 
and that I will raise him up on the last day. So we know that to turn to God is to be saved. We know that to believe on him is to be saved. And we know that those who look to the Son and believe are saved. So the Son is the one who saves and God is the one who saves. So therefore, Jesus is God who saves. And that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way to salvation is to look upon the Lord to be saved. Same command. Look to the Lord and be saved. And Jesus says, look on the Son and believe and they will have eternal life. And so both in the Old and the New Testament, the mechanism of salvation is the same. It's to look upon God as the source and the author of salvation. And what then happens if we fail to do this? This is not some kind of option for us. This is life or death. And the finished work of this is an eternal and a final judgment. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks of this final day and it uses similar language to the psalm we've been reading. Isaiah chapter 2 speaks of this day. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12. And it says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all the proud and the lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Here he's speaking of the mightiest, the most powerful, the most proud, the most hard-hearted. And he says they will be brought low. And he uses the same language. Look at me in verse 13. It says, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, and against the lofty mountains, and against the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against the beautiful craft, and the the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall all be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of rocks and holes in the ground. And from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth, in that day mankind will be cast away and their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship. And they will enter into the caverns of the rocks, into the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Here we have a picture of this day when the Lord's voice goes forth in all the earth and the result is the breaking of the cedars, finally. And the result is the shaking of the mountains and not in a way that offers salvation but in a way that offers judgment. And there is a day coming when the voice of the Lord goes forth and it achieves exactly its ends. And we have a picture of that day when all the earth does in fact hear the voice of God. It is not that some hear it and perceive it and some don't. All hear the voice of the Lord. And you see the response in verse 9 of Psalm 29. It says that the voice of the Lord makes the oaks to shake and it strips the forest bare and all in his temple cry glory. As the voice of the Lord goes forth, and heaven comes down to earth, you'll notice the end result at the end of verse 9 is the same as the end result in verse 1 and verse 2, which is that in the heavenly places, God is worshipped and ascribed to glory. 
and when his voice makes landfall and his power goes over all the earth, the end result is that all cry glory. The Lord is worshipped not just for his salvation, not just for his majesty, but even so for his judgment. At the end of time, when his voice goes forth and all things are made bare, and he strips the forest and he makes the oaks shake, all in his temple will cry glory. The same result as we saw in verse 1 and verse 2. And so it is now that if we know that at the end of time all cry glory, that we as the faithful body of believers seek to start early. We seek to begin that moment now. We don't want to wait for our death and our final glorification. We want to wait right now to begin to glorify God and make the most of our time because there is no better way to spend your life than to glorify God. In fact, that is the only end to which you were created, is to make God most glorified through your work, through your relationships, through your witness, through your faithfulness to the brethren, through your service to the church, through your ability to work and labor at a job that he has gifted you in and placed you in for a moment such as this, that you might be a faithful witness for him or that you might work and cultivate the earth to glorify his name and to serve people and to take care of them in their sickest and their worst or to educate the next generation. Whatever the Lord has created you for, whatever the Lord has put forth for you, the end of that is to glorify him. The end of that is to work and to cultivate so that we can cry glory to God in our work, with our voice, with our full lives, that it screams glory to God. Because at the end of time, that is what we will do. We will cry glory to God because we have observed his goodness and we have tasted and seen all that he has to offer us. And we do not forget the benefits of God, but we meditate on them day and night. And we remind ourselves and we remind others of those things. And we constantly seek to orient our lives to most glorify God. We see then in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 13, that it is the same end response. It is actually the same order. Revelation 5, I'll turn there. Revelation 5, 11 and 13. And we see that it starts in heaven and the earth mirrors the response of the worship that is in heaven. And here John says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And what are those heavenly hosts doing? Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And verse 13 says, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Heaven praises God. It is doing so now. The earth will one day praise God and the faithful begin to cultivate it in that direction. And we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we seek to, as heaven praises God, praise God here on this earth. So we've seen that we can first 
perceive his glory and then we can hear the voice of God so we can begin to better glorify him. And then ultimately, in verses 10 and 11, we are called to receive his peace. The end of the glory of God is that it ultimately brings about peace for us. God's glory is the very thing that brings about peace on earth. Many people seek to pursue world peace, and they do so through all kinds of means. Through mutual compromise of different religions, through mutual compromise of different moral systems. What is the way to achieve peace on earth? It is to receive the peace of God, which is all creation submitting to his glory. At verse 10, it says that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Here we see that the Lord sits over the flood. And this word flood is unlike things that we've looked at before in the text, where it talks about the chaos and the general ruin and the general rebellion of humanity. But here it says that the Lord sits over the flood. The word here is the only other time it's used is in Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about the Noahic flood. And here it says that the chaos and the storm that brought upon the flood on Noah during that wicked generation that Noah and his family were saved from through the ark, the Lord sits enthroned over that flood. That chaos, that terror, that judgment that the earth felt was not some random storm, some natural disaster that we are to understand as being attributed not to God because he couldn't possibly be culpable of something like that. You see, we try to alleviate God of his sovereignty. We try to alleviate and take that away and try to excuse those kinds of things. But God makes it clear that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. That it is the Lord who caused the flood in Genesis 6. And he sent his judgment over all the earth. And the Lord sits enthroned as a king forever because the rebellion that caused that flood to go forth in the earth is not a rebellion that God couldn't quench. And God, through the flood, achieves both his judgment and his salvation. Through that flood, he achieves the judgment of all the earth, but he also achieves a new earth and the faithful to cultivate that earth. And here, through the Noahic flood, through God judging the earth, his wrath brings about his glory because now he has an earth that is washed clean with a blank slate and a faithful servant to begin to cultivate it, to begin to renew and have a second chance at bringing God glory in the earth. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. But remember that the Noahic flood didn't ultimately bring about that resolution. That the earth soon after Noah, and not even into that later generation, the earth is already rebelling again against God and turning away from his faithfulness. And here as the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, we know that one day the Lord will sit enthroned in his final judgment in a way that is completely irreversible. That God sits over the earth as king forever. And one day there will be a judgment that will not yield another rebellion of the people, but will achieve the ultimate salvation of the earth. That will achieve the ultimate submission of the earth to God's glory. And that will achieve, as it says in verse 11, peace. And that now, we as the people of God need to receive that peace. We need to submit to him being glorified. And as it says in verse 11, may the Lord bless his people with peace. 
This is the same benediction that you get in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 27. It says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord uphold you with his righteous right hand. This is the peace that we get. But notice where this peace comes from. This peace cannot come from our success in this world and our accomplishment and looking back at our own success. This peace cannot come from how much money you have in your bank account. There is no peace at the end of that. This peace cannot come from the kind of relationships that you find yourself in. Because all relationships go away eventually. Eventually, people pass away. And even the most happy married relationship, there is a widowed and a widower, and those things end. Peace cannot be found there. Peace cannot be found in your popularity, how many friends you have or how many texts you get. Peace cannot be found in how many people you have following you on social media. Peace cannot be found in how many people are influenced by you and how many people listen to your advice. Peace cannot be found in your own religious self-righteousness and your own ability to somehow achieve a moral code on your own. You can obey the law perfectly, as the rich young ruler did. But you will ultimately not find peace at the end of that. Because it still leaves a void. It still leaves a gap. There is only one way to find that kind of peace. And it is from God. It says, may the Lord bless his people with peace. That's the only place you get it. Is God bringing his peace to earth. Through his judgment, through his glory, going down from heaven to earth, causing a wake of devastation, but ultimately yielding a fruitful land, submissive. And the people of God cry glory as a result of this destruction. They can look over all the chaos, the cedars of Lebanon shattered, the wilderness shaken, the mountain shaken, and they look back, or, back over all this devastation. And they attribute to God his sovereign rule, and they say glory to God, and he says to his people, peace. And they receive it, and they glory in it, and so heaven is made, or earth is made like heaven. Heaven cries glory and honor and dominion for God. And so the earth begins to do the same. And we as the people of God submit to his glory. And we receive his peace. And we long and we pray for the day that ultimately we will be able to do this perfectly. In perfect splendor, in perfect holiness, in perfect submission. Because even the best of our submission now is still yet imperfect. And so we long for God to submit us. We long for God to lay us low so that we can be clothed in holiness so that we can glorify him better. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good and just and a faithful God. You are understanding. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in steadfast love. Lord, I pray that we would not too soon forget that all of the benefits we have in life, all of the good things we have, they are merely gifts from you that we have on borrowed time. Where Lord, ultimately those things can't satisfy us. Ultimately, Lord, there is nothing that can satisfy us. There's nothing that can satisfy, satisfy this earth. There is no peace to be sought in creation except that you are fully glorified, fully honored. Not only in heaven, Lord, that's not good enough, but also here on earth. So I pray that you would begin to cultivate our hearts in this direction. Lord, whatever hard places exist in our hearts, whatever stubbornness there is, whatever rebellion there is, that you would shatter it. Whatever dry, empty wilderness there is, Lord, that you would cultivate it and subdue it and make it fruitful.
Because, Lord, you can. And as your voice goes forth, it achieves its end. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. We thank you that you can achieve your ends and that we are happy to be along for the ride. Lord, we pray that we would begin to honor and bless you better. We pray for an opportunity this week to begin to glorify you more faithfully, Lord. And we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to live but one day more so that we can bring more blessing and more honor to you, God. In your name, amen.